Noam Chomsky uh, quickly became one of my uh, personal heroes. And uh, so I jumped uh, at the occasion and uh, visited Palestine. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And that's exactly how I felt after I visited Palestine. Okay, so hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Book Cafe Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Nizam. And in today's episode, we will be talking about this book right here behind me, entitled On Palestine, written by Professor Dr. Noam Chomsky and Professor Dr. Ilan Pape. And my conversation partner for today's episode is the editor of the book, Mr. Frank Borat. So Frank, uh, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Salut, comment ça va? Sava, thanks, Omar. It's a, it's a pleasure to okay. be part of the show. Okay, so thank you so much, Frank, for your time. Um, I've been a really huge fan of all the work that you've done, specifically with regards to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and uh, and I do appreciate you taking the time from your busy schedule to talk to us today. Um, so, Frank, uh, obviously, uh, our viewers and listeners will be very familiar with uh, Professor Dr. Noam Chomsky and Professor Dr. Ilan Pape. And as I pointed out in the beginning that you are the editor of the book. So as the host of the show, I know exactly who you are. But for the sake of our viewers and listeners who haven't read the book yet and who may be discovering you as well for the very first time, uh, do please take this opportunity to tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Okay. Um, so, yeah, my, I mean, I'm actually French. Uh, you, you probably noticed from, uh, from my accent uh, from the south of France. But uh, um, I moved to London when I was 20 years old for, for work. And that's when uh, my activism really started. Um, I um, actually, my activism started um, just before that in Paris uh, through reading Understanding Power, a book by Noam Chomsky. Uh, so um, Noam Chomsky uh, quickly became one of my go-to person for anything political. And he uh, also became, in a way, one of my, uh, I don't know if you can call it this way, but uh, personal hero. And um, so, yeah, I moved to London, got involved with like Palestine solidarity groups. And very quickly, uh, a friend of mine who was a, phys a physician told me, look, I'm going to, to Palestine on this like 10 days study tour of the, of the region. We're going to meet Palestinians, Israelis, and, and we're going to learn more about the, the issue. And... Uh, so I jumped uh, at the occasion and uh, visited Palestine for the first time in 2007. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the Indian scholar Arundhati Roy said something, I can't remember when or where, but she said something like, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how I felt after I visited Palestine for the first time. There was no way back for me. I was like, you know, I met amazing people on the ground. They were kept telling me, that it was great for me to come, but my work was when I was going to be back in Europe, London, Paris, whatever. So from then on, like Palestine became a really huge part of my life. Um, very quickly, I, I started, I was involved and I, I became the coordinator mm -hmm. of an initiative called the Russell Tribunal on Palestine, which lasted for pretty much eight years um, and, uh, and allowed me also to, to meet a lot of my, again, personal heroes, Noam Chomsky, Ken Loach, Angela Davis, Alice Walker, Stefan Essel. And, um, and from then on, yeah, I mean, 
Palestine became uh, really a, a, a full-time job in a way and um and now nowadays I've, I've you know i've done a few books including on palestine i also did one with angela davis called freedom is, is the constant struggle i'm doing these videos on youtube a bit like, a bit like you in a way you know conversations about uh political matters and uh, i'm also now trying to produce films and documentaries around around the issue so that's that's sort of me in, in a nutshell Okay, wonderful. So thank you so much, Frank, for that uh, amazing introduction. So I think that uh, the kind of work that you're doing is pretty uncroyable, you know, if I may say so. So, so let's uh, let's get back to the book, uh, Frank. And uh, so the first question that I have is: uh, Was it because of your visit to Palestine in 2007, and then after that, your involvement in the Russell tribunals? Is that how you got uh, Noam Chomsky and Ilan Papi together for the first time to work on the book? Uh, please do tell us a bit more about that. Okay, so actually, this book is kind of a follow-up to another book. So um, when I was involved, when I became involved with Palestine in London, there was I was involved with the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, and uh, they had at the time um, uh, like a magazine. I think it was monthly or by month uh, or every two months called Palestine News, right. and. I liked doing interviews. I don't have a background in journalism, but I just like talking to people and stuff. And um, and I told them, why don't we try Noam Chomsky for an interview? And they were like, man, are you dreaming? And I was like, look, let's try. So I sent him an email because you know you can find his email on on internet. And he responded like the next day. I, I just couldn't believe it was him. I even told him, is it you or is it your PA? Or And it was him. So he responded. We did a short interview for Palestine News. And then uh, I had an idea to put him in conversation with somebody else. And uh, I knew Ilan as well, uh, a little bit, because uh, I was in London, he was in Exeter in the UK. So I told them, why don't we do a book together? And, and they accepted, which was for me completely imaginable, unimaginable. And um, so the first book was actually called Gaza in Crisis. But it was Noam in his house or in his office and Ilan in his office responding to my emails and then responding to Noam's response, you know, and Noam, etc. So we put this book together called Gaza in Crisis. But then a few years later, we were like, why don't we do this in a way properly? And we all meet, spend two or three days together and do a, a proper conversation. And again, they agreed, which was amazing. So Ilan and I, flew to Boston uh, and to the MIT, you know, uh, Cambridge. And we spent, I think, two two days with Nom in his office, having actually a, a proper conversation. And that became on Palestine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I have to say that it's a wonderful read. You know, I've had a, uh, I have to say that I've learned so much uh, just uh, have you being the interlocutor between these two phenomenal scholars and having them have that interaction in the book and actually responding to each other yes it's a phenomenal book i have to say so uh, yeah absolutely and uh, so coming to uh, the the history of the israeli palestinian conflict uh, there's this prominent uh, israeli author by the name of yuval noel hariri he's the author of the book sapiens who stated very recently that in order to move forward, you have to forget about the past. But is that really the case or is that really how we should be looking at it? I believe that uh, both uh, Professor Pape and Noam Chomsky and yourself state, mentioned in the book that it is very important to put the history in context. We have to know about 1948 before we can come to a resolution of what, to be, what, what is to be done. So would you like to elaborate more on that 
specifically with regards to 1948? Of, of course. I mean, I couldn't disagree more um, than with uh, Yuval, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's crucial in any form of um, life, in a way, you know, to understand even in your personal life, in your family life, you know, the past is a crucial part of it. And, and to understand the present, you need to understand the past. And to be able to work on the future, you need to also understand the present and the past. So um, and that's actually why we actually cut the book in three parts, the, the past, the present, and the future. Um, in a way, I think it's very, it's quite cynical and a bit too easy to say, even more so when it comes to Israel-Palestine, you have to forget about the past. I mean, if you tell me you have to forget about 3,000 years ago, the land belonged to the Jewish people and it was given to them by the Bible, I could agree because 3,000 years ago is not actually the past. You know, no one actually knows what happened 3,000 years ago, you know. Uh, but the past for Palestine is 1948. It's a very, very recent past. We're not talking about even like the 18th century, the 19th century. We're talking about the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So the past is crucial to understand what's happening now. And it's crucial actually to understand what Israel is doing now in Gaza, you know. And that's what Ilan's called it in, in his really amazing book, The Ethnic Cleansing uh, of Palestine. Mm -hmm. You know, um, this ethnic cleansing that happened in 1948. So when Israel was created, it's important to remember that two thirds of the Palestinian population, around 700,000 people, were expelled from their land, either by force or, um, or by, uh, by killing them. Uh, and these people have been refugees ever since, um, either in the diaspora, in Lebanon, including in Gaza. A lot of people living in Gaza now are descendants from people who were expelled from the land and the houses and the villages in 1948. So understanding the Nakba, which is the catastrophe that befell the Palestinians in 1948, is, is paramount to understand the present and potentially be able to work on a better future. And it's like, you know, think about, you know, the Aboriginals in Australia, you know, that were a victim of, uh, again, colonialism, ethnic lending, displacement, you know, the stolen generation, the babies being put into like white people, houses to turn them into better people, etc. cetera. Um, a lot of the uh, Aboriginals in Australia have, have said like, at least if the Australian state uh, was to acknowledge what he did to us at the time, uh, we would, you know, it'd be a first step towards peace and justice, you know. So I think it's it's crucial to understand the past, you know, you can't avoid it. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. And uh, I would like to also bring another scholar into this discussion, uh, Professor Dr. Benny Morris, whom, as you know, uh, is somewhat of a rival to Professor Papi <laughs> in terms of their views. They're both considered new historians, but whereas, as you rightly said, that Professor Pape in this book, as well as his other book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, states specifically that there was a conscious ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. Whereas Professor Morris seems to say that, well, you know, it wasn't really a conscious ethnic cleansing. It was the fog of war that actually led to a yeah. lot of people leaving Israel. So what would, what would be your take on uh, this conversation, Frank? And uh, how yeah. do you feel that the truth is somewhere in between the true or do you feel that no? Ilan uh, uh, Pape has got the narrative just right when it comes to 1948 and the Nakba. I mean, it's, it's very. I think it's a very easy answer to question. To easy question to answer. 
because um, historians usually base their, you know, their, their scholar, scholarly work on, uh, on facts. Um, so what Ilan is saying is that 1948 and the so-called War of Independence, its purpose was to expel the Palestinian people. It wasn't the war that created as a collateral damage the expulsion of the Palestinian people. And he says this because he's basing his, his argument on facts, on the diaries of Ben-Gurion, on diaries of very high-level rank, ranking officials in the Israeli army. Um, but also, we have to remember that people talk about 1948, the so-called War of Independence of Israel. But by December 1947, a lot of massacres and a lot of ethnic cleansing had already happened. So about six months or five months before the war. So, and you just have to read again, the, the, you know, it's important to like right now, for example, a lot of statements are being made on behalf of like Hamas and Palestinian factions while they've never made them, but it's being repeated all over the media again and again and again. On the other hand, you've got Israeli officials, Israeli presidents, Israeli prime ministers in generals making statements public statement on TV, on radio, and no one is quoting them or mentioning what are, what are, they, what are they saying. And it's the same for 1948. Ben-Gurion clearly stated, we, we're going to act as we were, as if we were the victims, as if all the Arab states, you know, with the, the small, the, you know, the David versus Goliath, you know, we, you know it's, a, it's a war of survival. This is going to be what we're going to, but in private, he said, we're going to crush them. We know that. We're superior military. We've got more people. A lot of the Palestinian leaders died during the first revolt of 1936-1939 against the British Empire. You know, it's a done deal. And by the way, we're never going to settle for Palestinian state. Eretz, Israel, either to the sea, is the land of the Jewish people. So, and again, if you want to go back to from the river to the sea, the Palestinians are being accused of being anti-Semites and stuff. You know, they're not saying... We don't want any Jews in the land. They're saying, and so have equal rights from the river to the sea. The Jewish Israeli leadership is saying, Eretz Israel, from the river to the sea, Jews only. So, but again, the media is turning this into against the Palestinians. So I think Benny Mori, he came to the same conclusion as Ilan Pape. There was an ethnic cleansing, but he's in a way, in a way he's saying, I'm not sure it was you know, something they wanted. And maybe it was necessary anyway. That's the kind of view which is just wrong on every aspect, I think, every level. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So definitely that's an ongoing debate between these two stalwarts. And, uh, you know, we would love to have them both uh, go at it in an episode. And perhaps maybe you could host that on your mm. YouTube channel. So that would be wonderful for people to actually decide for themselves that who has the better argument. So uh, just moving on and coming back to the book, uh, Frank, uh, Professor Pape mentioned a couple of paradoxes right in the beginning of the book. So I'd just like to touch upon one of them. Uh, and that is that the Israeli public at this point in time have a very favorable opinion of their own state, whereas the rest of the world has somewhat of a negative view. And perhaps there are some people in Israel who look at uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in a negative light, but overall they seem to have a very positive opinion about their own state. Uh, having said that, to what extent can we push this blame on the Israeli journalists for not giving a better picture of the on-ground uh, occupation that's happening every single day since 1967. Like, for example, we were very uh, lucky to have hosted uh, Gideon Levy a couple of episodes back, 
and he seems to be the only one who has uh, this integrity or this moral voice to speak out against the occupation and to document it for the last 40 years. Why do we not see more journalists like Gideon Levy reporting on what's actually happening in the occupied territories? What would be your take on that? I mean, yes, obviously, Gideon Levy is, uh, you know, an, an amazing person, an amazing journalist. Uh, there, there's also Amira Amira Ahas, uh, you know, for, for, from Haaretz, that she actually lived in, in Ramallah for many years. She actually lived in Gaza for many years. But uh, yeah, apart from them too, there's, there's not many. But um, I recently did an interview on my YouTube channel with Nurit Peled, who is a, an Israeli scholar. And she actually studied the way Palestinians and Arabs were portrayed in Israeli school books. And what she came, she came to the conclusion that from the earliest age, like as, 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 as early as you can open a book and read a book, six, six years old, five years old, the Israelis are, seeing, are made to see the Palestinians as non-humans, dangerous, violence, and wanted to eradicate the Jews. So the, the brainwashing is happening at a very, and the propaganda is happening at a very, very, very early age in Israel. Um, also, the Palestinians, for anyone who's been to Palestine in, in recent years, and I haven't been, by the way, because I was denied entry in 2013 and barred for 10 years, so I could go back this year, maybe. Um, the Palestinians have been made in, invisible. You know, the wall, sort of, you know, they, we hide them behind the wall. The wall. Um, and, and they've been made completely invis invisible. So a lot of Israelis, like the, the vast majority, have never stepped foot in the West Bank. They've never crossed the checkpoint, except wearing an M16. So there is, you know, a, a, a very important propaganda and brainwashing that is taking part at a very early age that makes the Palestinian non-humans and invisible to the Israelis. And there's also... For example, the fact, you know, this like um, rave, the party on, on, on October 7th, uh, this dance party that was uh, a lot of innocent people actually died. And that's uh, horrible. But you really have a dance party about two kilometers away from what Norman Filkenstein calls a concentration camp. This is this is incredible, and and this shows it, it shows you the fact that the Palestinians are invisible. They don't really matter in Israeli society. So we're gonna dance, you know, party, take drugs, two kilometers away from an enclave that has been under blockade. Uh, people like you know struggling for food, for water, uh, for sixteen or seventeen years, and you know it show you it really shows you the, the disconnect really. Um, in the Israeli society. Absolutely. And yeah, that is uh, quite an eye-opener. Like you said, I didn't know that it was only two kilometers away from the Gaza border. So that, that really shows that the, the Gazans were extremely invisible to the Israelis who were on the ground. Mm. So, uh, so Frank, uh, just moving ahead a little, little more, um, uh, based on what I've read in the book and my understanding of the entire situation, uh, I came to the conclusion that there's probably four possible options with which to come to a, you know, to, to come to a peace or uh, to come to a resolution, basically. And so I'll just name them one by one. So the first solution would be 
one democratic state for both Jews and Arabs. Number two would be an ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian Arabs by the Israeli Jews. Number three would be apartheid. And number four would be genocide. Would you agree that these are the only four solutions that are actually in hand and that only one of them is, uh, is something that we can live with in the 21st century? What would be your take on that? You know what, just for the sake of it, I would add the two-state solution because even though I think anyone who knows about Israel-Palestine, including politicians that still that are still advocating for the two-state solution, know uh, that it's impossible, it's still on the table. Biden repeated it about two weeks ago. We need a two-state solution while he's made and his administration and every administration before him everything they could for the two-state solution not to happen. But uh, I would agree. Um, and I, I think in a way there's two solutions. One of them is equal rights for anyone who lives between, you know, the river to the, the sea. Uh, so, you know, like a, a normal, proper democratic state, um, same rights, same access to health, education, food, housing, um, etc. cetera. Uh, that would be, yeah, like what Noam Chomsky calls like a you know, one state solution or a binational state, you know, and we've got examples of this. I live in Belgium, you know, it's a state where like uh, there is like the Flemish people and, uh, and the French speaking people, they live in the same rights, uh, but they speak a different language and, you know, they're, and they have different institutions, but they have the same equal rights. But for me, like what Israel is trying to do now and what Israel has been trying to do since whatever, 47, is to turn the Palestinians into the Australian Aboriginals or the Indian Americans. I think they know that they won't be able to kill them all. The Palestinians will always exist in historical Palestine, um, but they want to make them so, they want to smash them so much, they want to like, you know, make them so depressed and so and, and small that they'll be manageable. Let's, let's, you know, you'll have a few enclaves, there'll be instead of 2 million of, that, of you, there'll be like 400,000. We'll give you vouchers to buy food and, and, and alcohol because, you know, I'm talking about alcohol, Indian Americans and Aboriginal, there's a major problem. And there, but you'll be forgotten, you know, you'll be, uh, you'll be uh, sort of, you know, Indian Americans uh, uh, or Aboriginals, even though obviously the Aboriginals in Australia and the Indian American in, in the US are still fighting, obviously, for their rights. But they, they've been sort of partly genocided. Uh, so there's only a few, uh, a few of them, in a way, remaining. So I think that's what Israel would like to do. I hope it's not possible. Uh, but we've seen now with what's happening in Gaza that they have really total carte blanche to, to do whatever they want. You know? um, and we also know that the US could end this tomorrow if they wanted. You know? um, so, um, yeah, and, and obviously the more just, fair solution would definitely be, you know, same rights for all the people. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And speaking of carte blanche, uh, Frank, I think you put it very aptly uh, when you said that uh, as long as the Americans are supporting uh, Israel, uh, they will not, you know, uh, stop whatever they're doing. And I think that in the book, you all, uh, it was Professor Chomsky who said that the only reason that apartheid South Africa lasted for as long as it did was because of American support. 
and it didn't matter what the rest of the world was saying so as long as the american mm. support was there but as soon as it was removed uh you know apartheid came to an end yeah. or to 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 a lot, huge extent um how far do you think that uh, how long into the future do you feel that it will take until the americans stop uh, you know supporting all the carte blanche activities that israel is doing do you believe that we'll see this happen in our lifetime or is it very unpredictable to say when it may all come to an end I, I hope so. I hope we see we see this, you know, in our lifetime. Um, uh, it's not sustainable. You know, Israel is actually a problem for the United States of America. A lot of former CIA officials and stuff have said it. You know, uh, you know, high-ranking security officials. You know, Israel is becoming a problem for for the U.S. You know, um, so um, and I think um, we see it. Like in the Democratic Party, the the younger voters are opposed in like huge percentages. You know, like seventy percent are opposing what's happening in Palestine. So, inshallah, you know, the new generation will change things. There's still a lot of work uh, to do, like major work to do. Um, but you know, the the work that you know organizations including like Jewish Voices for Peace, for example, is doing in the US is, is crucial. And there's more and more and more of us. And that's what, you know, we need to keep hope and keep, uh, and, and we need in a way to focus on, on, on the beautiful things that are happening. Because if we only focus on what's happening in Gaza, it can be soul destroying. It, it's too hard. It's too horrible. On the other hand, there are millions of people in the streets. There's more and more people coming out in support of Palestine. So it's got at one point or another to change things, you know. Um, but right now, um, it doesn't. Or it, it does, but like, like drip by drip by drip. But, you know, the only things we can, the only thing we can do is keep going. You know, we owe it to the Palestinian people. You know, and we will stop when it's over, when apartheid is over. Until then, you, you gotta, you know, because it's. Um, I keep re repeating that, but I, I saw this uh, young woman, Jewish activist from Jewish Voices for Peace, saying, in a, an amazing speech she gave in New York, um, it's it's um, it's all of us or none of us, mm -hmm. and I think you know, as as you know, we have to see ourselves uh, as, you know, citizens of the world in a way, you know. Um, and I think, you know, again, quoting maybe Nelson Mandela said, you know, we won't be free until everyone is free, uh, you know, and including the Palestinian people. So I think that's what we have to, to keep doing. Absolutely. And I think that's really well said, Frank. Okay, so uh, we're pretty much getting to the end of our episode, Frank. But just before we let you go, uh, we have, a, as you know, that we're a podcast about books, you know, it's in the title. So we have a couple of staple questions that we usually ask our guests. So with your permission, I'll just ask you a couple of them. Uh, so the first staple question is, um, are you more of a fiction person or a nonfiction person? What genre of books do you enjoy reading? Oh, my God, this is like, I think I haven't read a fiction book in years. And I, I, I'm feeling really bad about, you know, and anyway, as activists, we, we, we owe it to ourselves as well to um you know care is very important you know and we need to be healthy and we need to be in a way happy to be able to help others you know and, and to join the, the struggle but I, i'll say like you know 98 percent of the books i've bought 
and read. And actually, I've bought a lot more books than I've read. <laughs> I've got I'm about 200 books late, you know, behind um, our, our nonfiction. Yeah. But I enjoy f fiction. I think I read one in French about six months ago that I really loved. But then, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, no, uh, wonderful, wonderful. So, yeah, I'm also very skewed towards the nonfiction uh, side of it. I did a, I think I did a count of the books that I read in the last few years, and I found that at least 70% was nonfiction and 30% was fiction. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but since you're in Brussels, Frank, uh, let me just throw out a question related to fictional books. Uh, if you could pick your favorite fictional detective, uh, who would you pick? Would it be Hercule Poirot or Tantan? So which of these two would you pick? Yeah. Tintin, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ah, it'd be Poirot. It'd be Poirot. Poirot. Okay. I, 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 only because um, my wife loves Poirot. You know, every, every time, like, you know, we're in a hotel and there's TV and then there's an old episode, you know, on Hercule Poirot on TV. She, like, she just loves it. So, uh, I've, you know, and I just like his behavior, his mustache, he's like, he's, you know, right. it's kind of like clumsiness. So Poirot, yeah. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, and finally, the last question um, uh, for the show, uh, Frank. And uh, and let me just uh, uh, preamble, give a preamble. A lot of our guests have said that this usually is a very tough question. Uh, and that's the response I've been getting consistently for, from all of our guests. But I'm sure that you can give us a very good response to it. And the question is, if you could select a book that you feel that every young person should read at least once in their lifetime, what book would that be? Um, wait, um, I have to find the right title. So I'm, uh, all right. So it's funny you're asking me that. It's, it's obviously a tough question. And, and if I think about it for five minutes, there'll probably be five, ten books. But... When you asked me the question, the first two books that came to my mind right away uh, were Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo, mm -hmm. which is an anti-war book um, that was written early in the 20th century. So Johnny Got His Gun. But the book that came to my mind before that was uh, Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn was a U.S. historian that wrote uh, uh, A People's History of the United States of America. But his book uh, called You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train was amazing. And I remember I read it a couple of times. Maybe the last time I read it was 10 years ago. And um, when I read it, I was like, this book should be in every school, in every university. You know, it should be part of the you know curriculum of people. You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train by Howard Zinn. Okay. So that'd be my book. Awesome. Wonderful. Wonderful. So we'll have both those uh, books in the description. And thank you so much, Frank, for indulging us uh, with those answers. Okay. So uh, at this point in time, let me just state that um, for our viewers and listeners who have been with us all this time, uh, thank you very much for staying till the end. If you are watching this episode on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe to the channel and hit that bell icon. The episode will also be available on Apple, Google, and Spotify. So be sure to download it as well. Let me just grab the book from behind me. So the book, once again, is On Palestine, written by Noam Chomsky and Ilan Pape and edited by Frank Barat. It's a fantastic book written by two fantastic scholars and edited by an equally fantastic editor. So please be sure to go out and buy the book. It's a fabulous book. It really gets you up to speed on what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Uh, Frank Barat, uh, my thanks to you as well, sir. You've been a wonderful guest, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. 
I really learned a lot from this episode and I continue to learn from you uh, every single day with regards to all of your activities, everything you've done uh, on camera, off camera. And uh, I really hope that you continue to do this for as long as it takes to get uh, freedom for the people of Palestine. So thank you very much once again. Thanks a lot, Omar. I really enjoyed this as well. Thank you. A bientôt. Cheers. A bientôt. Bye-bye. I am here. I am alive because the day that my bubba, my grandmother's entire family was massacred in a genocide, she just happened to be absent. And so I spent years and years agonizing over the question of where were the neighbors? Why did they just stand by? And so it is with all of my Jewish ancestors at my back, the one who survived and all those who didn't, that we say now more profoundly than ever before, we refuse to be neighbors who just stand by. We are organizing right now the largest demonstrations of Jewish people in solidarity with Palestinian people in history. Because while they say it is these people or it is those people, we know what is true, what has always been true and what will always be true, that it is all of us or none of us. Well, I am here on behalf of hundreds of thousands of American Jews